Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. As Tim Ferriss says, hello, my minions. This episode's guest is my man, Zach Couples. Zach graduated from St. Ambrose University with a Doctor of Physical Therapy in 2011, completing an orthopedic residency in 2013 to attain his OCS. He is a certified strength and conditioning coach and has spent the bulk of his career studying and becoming certified in various lines of thought, such as the Postural Restoration Institute, FMS, SFMA, dry needling, precision nutrition, Lee Taft's certified speed and agility coach, and many more. You can check out Zach's full bio over at the show notes. On this episode, Zach and I discussed a lot of topics, including Zach's background, what are the good and not so good things that Zach currently sees within the physical preparation and human performance professions, and what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he is currently seeing? I asked Zach, how can we teach and encourage critical thinking skills? I asked Zach to share with us his model for optimizing human performance. Zach and I discussed the importance of having a social network. I asked Zach about his growth so far as a human being. I asked Zach, how has he used adversities in his life to facilitate his communication when working with his clients? I asked Zach, when do we stop making allowances for people's behavior? I asked Zach to outline his in-person assessment process with a patient. 
Zach shares with us his biggest lessons he's learned so far in his life and career. I ask Zach, how does he learn? Zach shares with us his top resources. Zach does an amazing Ronald Reagan impression. Waiting to hear this. I asked Zach if he only had one year left on planet Earth, how would he spend that year and why? And finally, if Zach could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was a great discussion with Zach, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Zach, thank you, so, thank you so much for making time, my man. I really do appreciate it. I can't believe it's taken this long for us to uh, finally get an interview together. I know it's been a, it's been a hot minute. I mean, I've been well aware of your, uh, your podcast and I mean, you're doing great things, man, with it. So, uh, kudos to your, your interviewing prowess, your, uh, like, I love how you make it a conversation. You're kind of like the Joe Rogan of the fitness industry. as well. <laughs> uh, I'd actually love, uh, I'd love if that got back to Joe Rogan. Yes. Yes. And then maybe, you know, Robbie Burke is being interviewed by Joe Rogan and it's just the same back and forth. <laughs> that we're having here now <laughs> well there, there's definitely the same amount of swearing on my podcast as joe rogan so i have that going for me yes well, uh, I, hopefully i can contribute to some swears you know usually i try to try to stay on the on the low low um with with some of my material and try to keep it somewhat on the pg but i can go rated r when i need to if you know what good I'm well because because swearing is highly uh highly encouraged on this podcast as well as uh farting and burping and any other explicits um, so feel free. Uh, awesome. Listen, I really do appreciate making time because I know you are super busy. Well, actually, that's a lie. I don't. You know, everyone says that. Like, I know you're busy. It's like, I actually really don't know. I'm just assuming you're busy, but you seem to be busy from what from what I can tell. But that is an assumption, and we really shouldn't assume. But I'm just going to make the assumption that you're busy. Uh, are you busy? Am I right in saying that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll just say you're busy. Uh, no, seriously, I do appreciate it. And um, for the listeners, my man, who may not be too familiar who you are fit us in your background and be as detailed as you want like where are you from where did you grow up sports played college how did you get into physical therapy i fast um time in the you know d-league nba i know you're going to get to all that and what you're currently doing now so the mic is all yours for sure i'll i will try to be detailed yet brief because uh, there's someone who's near and dear close to me who says shut up and get to the point so uh, let me go ahead and do that uh, so I'm from, I'm from Illinois originally, a small town. I uh, grew up, I, was, I played basketball for a while, and then I really got into cross country and track. Those were my really big sports. I was, I was able to go collegiate in those division three, so nothing like super fast. Um, but I was always a guy who had to work really hard to try to be good at, at those sports. And so that's where I figured out hey, the strength conditioning kind of thing might actually help me and uh, got me my crowning jewel, which was winning most improved my sophomore year in college. Not like that was that was awesome because I sucked ass my freshman year and then I was really pretty good my sophomore year. So um, but what happened is I fell less in love with running and more in love with strength conditioning. I'm like, man, this is so powerful. I need to just get into this. But, you know, I have expensive tastes, Robbie. I need to make a little bit more money than uh, what the typical strength conditioning coach salary is. So that's where I looked first into chiropractic because I thought I could blend both of those worlds, mm. help people in pain, use manual therapy, make a little bit more scratch, that kind of stuff. And I worked for my high school cross country coach who was a, a chiro and I absolutely hated it. Just 
just hated it. I don't know what it was. Like I saw the first neck manipulation about shit my pants because I'm like, whoa, I'm not doing that. Um, so it was just, it was bad. And uh, so I'm like, well, shit, now what am I going to do? Then I ended up working at a PT clinic, fell in love with what they were doing there, even though it was, it was just your, your typical conventional PT. And I decided to go to PT school because I thought I could uh, blend both the PT and strength conditioning mm. realms. Did that. That's when I got to intern with Daddy O Pops, Bill Hartman at IFAST. Although back then, this is how OG I am, Robbie. Back then, he was working a little bit at IFAST, but he was also doing uh, IU Health Occupational Services. So we did uh, workers' comp. And that's when you, you get, I mean, you get a cornucopia of wonderful people at that. But it was just, it was a really cool experience because it's just a very different element from the, the cash pay stuff that Bill does now. Um, and I, I really, like, I savor that experience. Just for non-U.S. listeners, by workers' comp, you mean people who were, that was insur- insurance paid, was it insurance paid uh, physio? Yes, it was. So you get injured at work. There's an insurance that covers that, and that's who we predominantly work with. So you see the gamut of people who want to get better, who don't want to get better. Lots of, uh, like, you wouldn't think people in Indiana, Minneapolis is fairly far north. You wouldn't think people have a southern accent. They do. Like, we saw, we saw everybody at that place, man. It was cool. Uh, so did that, was, like, blown away, was really lit a fire under me being, being with him because I just, I wanted to be the best I could. At, uh, at this job, especially after uh, meeting some of the people who've gone through IFAST. So I did a residency after that, an orthopedic residency at my alma mater, St. Ambrose University. Then I've been kind of just all over the place, man. I worked in Chicago suburbs for a little bit, Chicago, Illinois. I worked, uh, then I moved to Arizona, which was awesome. Love the sun. Um, I worked at a clinic there. Then I did travel PT for a little while. Then I got my job in the NBA and the D League with the Grizzlies, Memphis Grizzlies and the Iowa Energy. And then once that was done, i.e. I got fired, I decided to go back into travel PT and really blow up my website. And so now, now what life looks like for me is I'm in a clinic between 32 to 37 hours a week. I'm seeing people outside of the clinic online, whether it's for movement consultations, mentoring, or doing online training. I'm doing blog posts, and now I'm teaching my seminar, and uh, that's, that's how I stay busy. So I usually ask people about their influences, but, I mean, it's basically going to turn into a two-hour love fest for Bill. <laughs> but, yes, uh, as it should. As it should, and rightly so, because um, he's an absolute legend, along yeah. with Lisa and Paxson. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, unbelievable, though. Unreal. Yeah. Um. But is there anyone else you would have in that category of, of being a big influence on you? And, and not only professionally, but also personally. And I know Bill has been both professional and personal, so he falls in that category. But is there anyone else that would even come close to having that same influence? It's, yes. I mean, I, like, I, I put Bill at such a high level, it's really hard to, to say. Um, but I would have to uh, also think of, of a big professional influence for me was Eric Otter. Mm. Um, who's also a the fucking mystery, the mystery man. I can't, I was like, does anyone like, as in, I know, like, he, he, like, I know where he's like, where he works, but it's like, yeah. he's just like, there's no online presence. Like, you know, he kind of just like go, like, people like see him every now and again at a seminar, but like, there's nothing out there else on him. Do you know, like, if you type in his name, it's just like, he has, he has that website, like, 
and it's like currently like away or something like that. Currently like, studying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's been studying for like ten years now. Um, yeah. Well, I I fortunately had the opportunity to work with him in Memphis. Um, I was there for a season, a half season, and then he came in in the summer. And uh, I'll tell you what, that man shaped me from a strength conditioning standpoint more than anyone because I, I, I had some experience, but nowhere near as much as, as most other people. I mean, my, my coaching at the time was I had a couple clients here and there outside of the clinic. Um, but then now I'm lopped into this strength conditioning for high level NBA players or D league players. And, uh, Eric really, really shaped my, my coaching skills in that regard. Um, not only that, but he's also challenged me to think outside to other areas. He's very much into functional medicine. Um, so that's an area that interests me. Sleep. Just, just I think using an approach that's multimodal, that takes care of all the potential ways that we can uh, ameliorate someone's way that they respond to stress. Like I, I think it's just the my approach after working with him became much more comprehensive as opposed to let's get you moving really, really well, even though that's, that's my bread and butter. I got to throw in the toast and jam, so to speak as well. in some of the other areas. So otter's definitely way up there for me. Totally great stuff. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot there I resonate with too, because for whatever reason, I mean, that's kind of where my mind has always been the last sort of, you know, I'd say eight, nine years. I tell you what was a huge influence on me in, in but what I mean what I mean by that is that like my mind has always been one of a very holistic nature, like understanding that like there's so many factors that influence the human organism. You know, everything from chronic factors. So chronic factors being like your fetal environment when you were like inside your mother's womb to early life uh, early life experiences to like your um cultural beliefs your society you grew up in, friends, family, so they're more sort of chronic influences, you know, really start to shape that prefrontal cortex. Um, and then the cue factors, you know, cue factors and being like circadian rhythms and sleep and blood sugar regulation and, you know, just things like that, like how a neurotransmitter fired all of a sudden, you know, right down to those acute factors even. Mm-hmm. And like all those factors, both chronic and acute, lead to, you know, the the behavior that any one particular person exhibits in any one moment of time like so again kind of going to what we spoke about offline in that trying to always understand you know that everyone and everything is with air for a reason and just always trying to ask that question why like i think asking that question is the most important question to ask and then uh, it's funny too because i heard mike robertson say about otter too he's like when otter finds out the why he wants to know the why behind the why and i'm just like nodding my head so i'm like yes that's me as well I'm like why <laughs> Uh, why uh, why because if you keep going back there we're just like we don't actually know because if you keep going back it goes all the way back to like well how did all this start we're like eh, we think it was a thing called big bang but now that's been even questioned so we don't really know <laughs> i did not know that yeah yeah well but, then you got lawrence Krauss talking about uh, the universe coming from nothing and how nothing actually has a whole lot of something to it so yeah well you can't know something when it's a nothing that's the thing what's the black shit in between stars i don't know but you will see the stars the black shit was in there in between it you know what i mean the yin yang yeah, yeah, yeah. you wouldn't know day without night or right without left or man without woman or hot without cold it's all contrast it's all necessary so for all those people trying to make everything good in the world realize that you wouldn't know good if there was no quote unquote bad yeah I, I say i say bad with like you know with like doing the parentheses thing with my fingers because like yes. it, there is no good and bad there just is it's yes. all it's all part of the whole anyway these little rants i go on and i'm trying to <laughs> let, the, let the guests speak more so ask me about your background influences 
I'll ask you one more general question and then we'll kind of get more into sort of your training and, and rehab sort of philosophies and systems and how you kind of look at the human organism and I suppose maximizing human performance. Small topics, I know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Before we get into that, Zach, um, in terms of like the good and not so good things that you currently see within the entire, you know, performance and rehabilitation professions, what are the good things you see and what are the not so good things that you're seeing? And with the not so good things, what sort of solutions would you offer? And another way that I've been wording that question lately has been, what makes you proud to be in our profession? And then what doesn't make you as proud? And with the not so proud stuff, what sort of solutions would you offer up there? I think um, that's a great question, man. It is a great question. Makes, just follow up your questions. I think what makes me, me proud to be in um, these professions, PT and, and strength conditioning is... Um, I think we have a lot of opportunity to help a lot of people, especially with the way healthcare is, is dwindling. Reimbursement rates are going way down. So it's the, the need for conservative measures to help people and whether it's health or performance, or in some cases both, because I, I do think like a strength coach or a trainer has a huge role in someone with persistent pain. Um, we are just at the forefront and that really excites me. That really excites me. I also uh, am excited that while we have a lot of fancy technology and equipment, there's, there's a large portion of the, the population in S&C that's coming back to the basics with things. It's like we can, even with some of the, you know, some of that bullshit breathing stuff that I do, like we still get, we still get people squatting and like, that's probably a good thing to get people doing. We still get people deadlifting. We still get people hinging. Like that really excites me. What really excites me is, guys like yourself and many others are looking at other, other areas to help our, our clients reach their goals. Like when I hear a trainer talking about sleep or even when I'm at Anytime Fitness and they're talking about, hey, you should, you should maybe start having coconut you know, milk as a, as a beverage, like that excites me. The fact that we are, we are looking at our people more holistically. Um, I, I think that those, those are avenues we need to continue to pursue. I think things that I, I don't like, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> I, I don't like ego. I think a lot of people in the industry, um, once they've gotten to a certain point, think that they're the shit and the urine, as Kanye once said in, in the quintessential song, Swagger Like Us, which was a T.I. song originally. And uh, like, I, I think that that hinders a lot of progress and sometimes people can be ashamed for trying to maybe, maybe take a concept and push it to the next level, but because of ego or many other influences, they are shunned for doing so. That frustrates me. I think what also frustrates me is a lack of education in some very basic areas, such as how, how pain and, and injury are related. I mean, I still, I still hear from some people, and, and physicians, about, oh, we looked at your MRI, you have six bulging discs, and that's why you have a small amount of back pain. When if you look at the research, and there's a study I just came across after taking a Seth Obert's class, um, that if you, they had 10, 10 radiologists look at one MRI over the course of three weeks, and they gave that person 49 different diagnoses. Um, I, I think people don't are not comfortable operating under uncertain scenarios or, or with uncertainty with anything we do. 
And I think a lot of people make dogmatic claims, both in, in the health and performance realm. And I just don't think we could do that. I think N equals one. I think we have to have a mindset that we are practicing. That's why it's called practice in medicine. I think you could call the same thing for practice and strength conditioning. And we are doing our best to take what we know from the sciences and make an educated guess to um, elicit a favorable change that doesn't meet the stuff that we find sexy, but what our clients find sexy. And I, I think we need more of that in this field. I'm making notes there just in case, because it looks like when I'm looking down, I'm on a phone, but as we discussed, I don't use my phone. <laughs> that is very true. No, you're Gucci. So you got it there. Um, no, they're, they're just going off that too, what sort of solutions would you offer for that? So like having too much ego and people having issues with uncertainty, what, what would you offer as maybe a solution for that? Yeah. Um, well, the biggest thing to help ego, I think, is to get put in your place. That happened to me when I got fired from Memphis. Um, because I would say I was one of the people who had the ego up until that point. And then, um, you know, I hit this pinnacle in the, the profession, so to speak, and then I get let go. And it was a good reality check for me. And I think now that I appreciate things with more humility, I'm able to think about more creative solutions that I probably wouldn't have beforehand. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one way to do it. But if you don't have um, someone to kind of knock you down, I, I think the biggest thing is approaching things with a beginner's mindset and making sure you, you listen to whoever, you know, whether it's someone who has a critical position that is against what your, your belief is. I think it would behoove you to understand that person's viewpoint better than they understand their viewpoint. And then if you feel like you need to knock them down, then go ahead and knock it down. Yeah. But what you might actually find is as you understand that person's viewpoint, it may change your perspective and that will, will help people for the better. It's like the classic, um, the classic sort of strategy for debate teams is to debate the opponent's point. Mm -hmm. So like it makes you even more prepared for, for them, for, you know, for the debate. Like it's to actually take trying to defend their point of view. So I think that's, you know, that kind of what came to my mind there as you said that. What I really wanted to ask you then off the back of that is how would you go about... I suppose, would it be teaching is the word I'm trying to think of? But how would you go about emphasizing, I suppose, emphasizing to our peers and probably, you know, the younger generation getting into the professional strength and conditioning and um, physical therapy, and to be honest, really any profession. But how would you encourage those to be better at critical thinking? That's a tough one, man. Um, it, it is a tough one. It is a tough I mean, one. Yeah, because I think where it really starts is wherever the, the first point of education begins. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, a lot of my physical therapy colleagues at us are taught that we know we should know most everything to be able to practice. Mm -hmm. And the system is set up so you finish school and then you are a full-fledged clinician. And um, that's probably not desirable from a critical thinking standpoint. Uh, and that probably feeds into some of the ego. Exactly. I'm a doctor of physical therapy. I just graduated from school. I know everything. No, you don't. Yeah. Um, I, I think it has to be made clear to people that this is just the beginning piece. But also, I think one thing we don't probably do is <clears throat> teach critical thinking skills within the school. Very true. Sure, we, we teach... Um, you know, how to appraise research and all of that. But a lot of the research that we came across was biased research. 
mm-hmm. towards whatever the school was teaching. Yeah. Never did we go with the, the contrasting opinion. So it's almost as though, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe more philosophy needs to be put in place with, uh, you know, to learn how, about how some people looked at things critically. Yeah. Uh, like that was one thing that I think probably helped me in that regard was in undergrad, I studied philosophy and uh, it helped me get that kind of critical mindset. But I, I think it's just, it's a skill like anything else and it needs to be taught in the early phases of schooling. Like I would love if they had something about critical thinking and appraising any information, not just research, but books, another person, um, it, you know, as chapter one of the NSCA manual. Yeah, I fully agree. And do you know what? I'm currently doing a, a strength and conditional master's at St. Mary's University in Twickenham in London. Now, I, I live in Ireland. The, the, the master's is online, like our assignments not are online. But one of, the, one, of, one of our modules, our first modules, it's, um, it's one of our first modules in first year. It's uh, research and statistics, but there's a huge critical thinking element in the first few lectures. And we basically have to get the book Bad Science by Ben Goldacre. And we mm. actually have a few assignments that we have to do out of the first few chapters on that. And um, I have to say it was so, so helpful going forward in terms of, you know, being able to read research and to like, you know, dissect research and, and really like critically analyze research. Um, and I have to say hats off to Dan Kleeter and, and John Goodwin. And no doubt that there was other people who influenced um, that module being, being organized the way it was. But just I, I know that Dan would be a big proponent of critical thinking and obviously John. And you can even see the way with, the guys teach their their materials on the course that they are very critically minded and they always have just excellent balanced viewpoints like they never come across with sort of an agenda or a bias um but they re i i really appreciated that that was an early educational piece to our masters because it really really helped you know in terms of all the other information that we were going to have to digest over the course of the masters now i'm still doing the masters i'm in third year that was in first year but I definitely, definitely think that a critical thinking module should be a part of every course, medicine, sure. physical therapy, no matter what it is like, because just the better your critical thinking skills, the better you're just going to be overall as a human, let alone as a, as a profession in any field. Um, yeah. I, I think too as well, because uh, I, I speak to James Smith so much, I speak to him every month on the podcast. And like the more people who I speak to who are masters of their craft, the more the common team is that they all have a good, solid foundation in science. Mm-hmm. Like they're all fairly well steeped in biology, chemistry, physics, and to a certain degree maths, but they definitely have biology, physiology, chemistry, and physics down to a competent level. And the more that I've learned physics over the last 18 months, the more I've probably haven't done as much chemistry but well biochemistry in terms of say biochemistry sport like i've done a lot of biology a lot of physiology and i did a lot of biomechanics and physics the last 18 months and like i'm just like oh the world makes like a lot more sense right now it's like (laughs) like seriously zach if you said to me like literally 12 months ago definitely 18 months ago explain to me newton's three laws of motion i'd be like haven't a fucking clue and now i'm like oh inertia acceleration action reaction and this, this is what they are and I was like, and they make so much more. Like when I watch someone move now and they're moving funky. So like their right arm is doing something funky. I know, right? Action, reaction. That right arm is moving that way because it's, it's being a lever for something on the opposite side of the body. What's going on? The other, you know what I mean? So it makes you think more like that. Like, you know, even just having like a fundal sort of fundamental thing about physics. Yeah. But also too, I think just getting more steeped in. I'm, don't worry, I'm going to let you speak now. No, you're uh, good. 
I, I also think that I've just been more steeped in, in science. It raises what, I'm not really sure it was Greg Knuckles or maybe it was Mike Isertels, one of these two gentlemen that said it. It raises your bullshit detector. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you know more science and you can be more objective about reality around you, and listen, reality, we can never, it, it'll never be objective because we're humans and we take it in through subjective, our subjective sensory systems because our sensory systems are all about our own perception. And that's the thing I actually meant to say about science too. The scientific method is objective, but science itself is not and never will be because it's always being run and done by humans and we, are, are, we all have biases. Whether, whether, whether we can... Whether we are consciously aware, well, we, we are consciously aware, well, not all of us, but a lot of people are consciously aware of some of their biases, but even, even like, we even still have subconscious biases that we're completely oblivious to as well. For sure. But again, like, yeah, so the more science, you know, the better your bullshit detector. Yeah. And um, I just think that's a common thing I've seen. So critical thinking skills and just, yeah. just getting a more understanding of science, I think it is, a, is a real way that can help that too. Um, and just something you brought up there too, you know, when you're saying like about breeding drills and people think you don't like lift weights. It's so funny because when I worked at Boyles and, and interned at Boyles and I got to know Mike, obviously I'm very good friends with Mike, one of my mentors. You know, he, he says like, that's the perception so many people have about Mike Boyle. Like they come to the facility and like, oh my God, like you're at least lift weights. And he's like, yeah, we lift weights, like a lot of weights and pretty heavy too, you know, like this guy's over there doing like four or 500 pounds on a trap bar deadlift and doing like, you know, Fucking, there's a guy doing 315 on a split squat for like five reps. Like that's 140 kilo for that's five fucking reps. Yeah, like that, they're the very strong boys. But like there's, there's some like you know just normal high school kids banging out 225 in a split squat for multiple reps, and you're just like that's wow. fucking strong, like you know. Um, so it's just funny when you said that too. And final thing I'll say to you is that you know you're talking about ego and uncertainty. Like, uh, and I don't know how many of my podcasts you've ever listened to, but I spoke about this at length one time. Was that um a, a, an area that I meditated on an awful lot of for a period of time was death and uncertainty and like if you think about it Zach like uncertainty is like actually in Tony Robbins' writings he says uncertainty is our number one biggest stressor to a human being it's uncertainty and actually the second biggest uh, stressor was too much certainty <laughs> it's a fucking paradox <laughs> that, that, that's it in Tony Robbins' book he goes number one yeah. biggest uh, fear people have is uncertainty second biggest one is too much certainty it's like the paradox in training of like specificity versus variation it's like ah but yeah. Uh, yeah, there's that yin yang again contrast in the universe but with uncertainty like what what this is just my thinking about it too probably someone has written about this somewhere but i kind of came to this sort of thought process myself is that like what people do to 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 like to feel that they have a sense of control over their lives is they 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 come up with certain behaviors now these behaviors can be beliefs in certain religious or political or just ideological beliefs of how people should live or they could be habits in like just daily routines, like I get up at this time, I always eat this food, I always have fish on Wednesday and chicken on Thursday, and I always do small-sided soccer with my mates on Friday, or whatever. Like they come up with really regimented like routines or just these certain habits that make them feel they have a sense of control of their lives and who they are and adds a bit of self-worth themselves. It's basically a safety blanket. So like OCD is the prime example of that. Like, you know, so people have OCD because it gives them a sense of control. Like, you know, and if they don't fucking clean the house, they don't feel in control and they clean the house, like, oh, I'm in control. Or if they don't flip the light switch on the way they want to, stuff like that. And really, they're just all behaviors or coping strategies with this, 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 this ultimate question that every single one of us has, whether some people think about it more than others. Like some people might meditate more on death than others, but all of us have the question somewhere in our mind, whether it's more to the forefront or back, depending on the person, but it's all comes into this uncertainty. And I think the more that we can kind of wrestle or tackle or come to peace with that, like, listen, 
none of us fucking know what's going on after this life. And that's one of, I think that's one of the reasons, or not one of the reasons, I think it's one of the key things in life that we, that we all have to manage in our own way and that we all have to kind of come to realization. I just think, and then like so many people are on a different journey to that sort of acceptance, you know, like, so I'd say at the top of that are Zen Buddhists who are like, they're just fully in that acceptance zone. Like they're like, you know, like they're so in an acceptance zone. They're not even a dot to us anymore. They're gone. Whereas like all of us are kind of, you know, still on that way. Like, you know, so I, I think like, just with uncertainty i think that's that bleeds into professions where people ego and like you know no like so kind of going back to like this is what you have you have this condition because people need to know like even people who are you've seen this like people like people get relief if they're like oh you have a low back disorder or you have uh, you know patella tendonitis and they're like oh, at least i have something to hang on like depression is another one too i'm not saying i'm an expert in depression but people then start to self-identify with that they're like oh mm. i have i have that's who i am and it's like you know, can get into all that, but it gives them something to hold on to. You know, it it, it gives For them sure. a sense of certainty again. You know, anyway, that was a fucking massive, massive rant there. That was awesome, man. It, it gives a meaning too, though. Like I have a lot. That's of what I mean. Meaning right yeah. now, yeah. Like I have this guy who I'm working with who's got like this really severe kidney disease that's probably going to inevitably lead to his demise. And like he's just like he's so proud of every single thing that's that's wrong with him. Yeah, I'll go to the hospital and my heart rate will be 29 and uh, I'll just be sitting there and uh, the doctors will be like, you're coding. And I'll be like, no, I'm not. And I mean, it, like, but just very much like, like that. And it's just so interesting. I, I know exactly what you mean. To see that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I think a lot of pro- the world's problems come back to uh, fear of death in, in some way, shape or form. But I think it can also be a great motivator. There's things I want to accomplish in my life. And I think maybe that's why I'm bludgeoning myself from a workload standpoint now, because I, I could die tomorrow, man. And I just don't know. It's, it's funny because that's exactly sort of Brett Bartholomew's sort of mindset. Because, you know, he, he, he went through an episode when he was in his teens, like, you know, he, and he openly admits, tells the story, you know, that he had a, an exercise and food disorder, like, and he was in a hospital with it and all that. And he says probably ever since that, he kind of has this, like, you know, this sort of mentality of fuck, it could be, I could be gone any minute. Like, you know, uh, apparently like the, if you, if you look up like JFK, like he had that sort of complex about him too, because like he was so sick growing up, like he nearly died like multiple times as a, as like a, a kid. And, a, and then as a teenager, he was just always in the hospital because he, I think he Crohn's or ulcerative as well. And obviously yeah. then his fucking back was in absolute ribbons all the time. And then all the drugs he took, yeah. but, uh, they, they said that he also had a sense that he wasn't going to live long either. But, uh, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that like death is a motivator too because in Harari's book, you know, Sapiens, you probably read that book, have you? I have not. I've no, but yeah, listen, it, it, it's, it's one of those books that you nearly don't need to read because so many people have read it and you just heard, heard like, so many people talk about it. I was like, I think I yeah. get the idea. But I, I read it there last year and just in the final chapter, he talks about like his predictions for the future and, you know, he's saying that consumerism is probably going to go to like life extension. You know, like a lot of people are going to spend like money on life extension, anti-aging, and you know, he's, just, he's like, you know, who knows how long then people could live and all that. But he started speaking about imagine if you can make yourself like live forever, barring like say a traumatic death, like you got killed, like falling off a cliff or run over by a bus from, but like you, you you were able to defeat aging. And he spoke about that. But when he spoke about that in the book, I was thinking like, but would that could that potentially like decrease creativity and innovation because there, there there wouldn't be you know what i mean like some like uh, james smith i think disagreed with me on that like he was like people who people who want to create and innovate will still do it like but i just think that sometimes too because of father time some people like 
you know, time, time pressure usually makes people more creative, you know? Yeah. Well, I think Bill's a prime example of that. Mm. Uh, you know, he's had multiple talks with me or like with him producing his book or some of the other writings. He's like, well, like that didn't really start happening for him until he turned 50. So when you realize your time is short, that that might light a fire in some people. Um, other people, maybe not. Maybe like some people have that creative bug and that's just a part of their, yeah. you know, part of their collection of cells that other people may not be. So, I mean, I think it can go either way. Yeah. Cause uh, like <clears throat> I've done a lot of reading and study this year, particularly around like constraints led approach, you know, so skill acquisition and, and uh, you know, Newell's constraint model. And I've often told this story too, that like one of my favorite musicians is Jack White from the white stripes. And he was talking like one day about like, uh, well, he was talking one day about like how he goes about writing songs and the whole creative process about that. Like that, that's only a whole, a whole other story. But, uh, he also speaks about like how he likes to put himself under constraints to be more creative in the moment, particularly when he's live. So when he was with the white stripes, he would never allow more than three like things to be occurring at once in terms of it was, it was vocals, guitar, drums, or it was vocal, piano, drums. Uh, he wanted Meg to play drums and like Meg White's a terrible drummer. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, like, so like when they started first, she couldn't drum at all. She never mm-hmm. played drums. And like, so he like started doing gigs and he just taught her the basic, like she obviously got, like class like over over her career like you know but people yeah. all people all say oh but she plays such like rudiment like just easy things and he was like yeah but jack that's what jack wants because he wants mm-hmm. to see how much he can get from like such a like such little input uh he never went on stage with a, a song list so they never knew what she never knew what the fuck he was going to like get into all of a sudden he played mm-hmm. with the worst guitars ever like multiple times you, you can watch on youtube his guitar strings break and like he'd be in the middle of a song and he would just have to like take his guitar off and like start going up to the piano and just start playing the song and with the piano. Like, and people in the audience uh-huh. wouldn't know. Like, uh, he would say like every night he'd try and make the piano like an inch away further. So he had to run over to it or do you know what I mean? So he used to play with shitty guitars. He put everything just, just uh, barely in reach to get to it in time. Wouldn't have a song list. Made sure that Meg just played the most rudimentary type of drums. And like he just wanted to see how much he could create out of such little. You know what I mean? And, that's so cool yeah so like he put a constraints on his on his creativity and sure like he's unbelievable wow. i'm gonna have to listen to more white stripes than i have been you know i'm a big hip-hop head though so that's why I don't... oh yeah 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 i'm a fucking uh, i love i'm like one of those i listen to Ang, but I, I grew up with the stripes man they were just they were my my yeah. teenage band but uh getting into how you see the human organism so everything now so human organism a human being, how you optimize in its performance in, in every regard, life, you know, cognitive, physical. When you just think human species, like what, like what comes to mind? One piece. There, we can't be neurocentric. We can't be tissue centric. We can't be joint centric. We can't be centric anything. Um, I, I recently had the opportunity to participate in a cadaver dissection with uh, Bill and a lot of the cadavers weren't fully dissected. And when you look at the cadavers and they're not fully dissected, a lot of this stuff looks pretty similar. It's only until you go through the separations that you can tell, okay, this is, this is muscle, this is tendon, this is ligament, because it's all interconnected within fascia. And then that's, you know, we have this slab of skin over that. Um, and really none of the systems are, are sexy on their own. Uh, a brain is nothing if I have no immune system, which means I would lose all my, my glial cells. 
right? So I, I think I'm, I'm starting to move away from a guy who's probably been a very much a nerve head and a, a pain science head for bulk of my career and, and just trying to look at everything. And uh, that's, that's kind of how I see the human organism. I also have to look at which ways can I favorably impact the, the human organism given my skill sets or skill sets I could potentially acquire. I'm not going to be a surgeon ever. So I can't say that that's part of my skill set that could potentially impact the organism, though it is something that could. But if we're looking at maximizing how or just allowing this organism to thrive in whatever endeavor that is, whether it's high level sport and say the NBA or it's grandma wants to go out and get mail out of the mailbox without falling. Um, I think there's a few different things that we can do to intervene on that person. I think the first one, and it's probably the most important is just social engagement, social support. That, that's a fucking huge one. And one people do not think about that's a great fucking yeah. point. Yeah. So like just being a good person, listening, setting up the environment so it's non-threatening or or it's like if you're in the weight room it's threatening enough that it enhances performance you know maybe you're playing loud music and you have red walls so people get juiced up as all hell like am i creating an environment that supports that person in their goals or maybe i'm just being i'm being that person that that listens and talks to them and is their friend that they maybe don't have at home maybe they're in an abusive relationship and they have no friends and they're on welfare. That's a typical story that I hear where I work right now. And I could just be that, that person who lets them know, Hey, you're safe while you're here and it's okay. Um, so just making sure you can interact in a way that mitigates threat or stress. I think there's that. Obviously I think there's the movement piece, which is our bread and butter. So can we, can we utilize movement in ways that help, push that the person's uh, push the needle towards that, that person's terminal task or terminal goal, whatever they want to do. Um, I think sleep is also another critical piece that we can, we can educate people on. I think that's important. I mean, we sleep a third of our lives, so there's probably a lot of good things that that does. Uh, nutrition. Are we making sure that we are helping our clients, uh, eat a diet that is consistent with their needs that allows them to thrive and proliferate without any type of allergens or things that might cause negative consequences, whether it's uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or what have you. And then the last thing I think would be uh, distress management. So when you, when you are stressed to the gills, do you have ways of discharging that? Whether that's doing some of the trauma-based work that uh, if you're not familiar with Seth Obers, I think his stuff fits in right there. Um, meditation, maybe some of the things that we've talked about in terms of looking at life as accepting things as, as just as they are, like all of those things I think are very relevant things that can help an organism thrive without having to do something that goes beyond super, super physiologic, whether that's, you know, drugs or surgery or anything basically you need a physician's referral form or, or a black market connect. Man, that's a fucking savage answer. Really, really good answer. And the reason why the social aspect has really resonated with me is, you know, if you were to put all the critical factors that influence the human organism and were to like rate and rank them in terms of like how you're actually doing in each one of those categories, 
that was probably the worst one that 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 the worst it was the worst category for me that one personally you know so if you look at things like you know like movement exercise sleep circadian rhythms hydration food like i was doing very good in all those and and pretty well in, in in others but like when it comes to like socializing or social network disaster like disaster you know what i mean and i remember like last winter here in ireland i fucking nearly like lost my mind like so it was just literally I, I could go like a whole day without actually physically interacting with a human and i started like and i started to realize like days when i had good interactions everything just was better like even and i've no evidence for this but it's, it's something I, I really do want to investigate like i even felt like like my bell movement my digestion was better just after talking to someone like i don't even like there probably is a mechanism for it but i just felt like my my whole robustness as an organism was always better when i just had some type of social interaction with another human you mm-hmm. know what i mean whereas if i didn't um because i've kind of for whatever reason i think i have this biased mindset of a kind of like fuck you i don't need anyone else i'm fine you know i'll do it myself type way that's kind of, i don't know why i have that sort of biased sometimes i have that you know i'm trying to be a little more like no like this like i'd be very i'd see my i probably i'm a little more biased being like very independent rather than being interdependent like you know realizing that mm-hmm. listen there's a larger community here and if you if you contribute more, you'll get so much more in return rather than saying, oh, if I just look after myself and do my bit, that's enough, that kind of way, you know? So just yeah. the social aspect's been very big for me lately. Something I just want to ask you to, uh, Zach, is that, you know, for us to be able to facilitate growth and empowerment in others, we obviously have to start with ourselves. So in terms of your own personal development and growth as a, as a person to, uh, to who you are right now in this very moment in time, how, how has that journey evolved? In terms of like, how am I growing as a person? Yeah. So like from, from the day you were born to right now, like how, how has your journey evolved in terms of just trying to understand yourself more and, you know, trying to basically love yourself more so that you can then transfer that yeah. to every human you come in contact with. And obviously that's going to help you facilitate the clients and athletes and whoever else. Yeah. You work with. Shit, man. It's, uh, it's a work in progress as always. Yeah, um, it, it, listen, it's going to be a work in progress for the day we die. Like, but I'd love to, I'd love to hear your, yeah. your journey. Um, you know, I'd say like growing up, I was a very shy kid, timid, not uncertain of myself. Um, and uh, I, I think what what started things was I had a very, I had a I had a mother who really pushed me to to be because I grew up single single parent home, and uh, my mom really pushed me to try to to always be better. Like nothing was ever good enough, mm. uh, which has its 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 blessings and its curses for me now because now I'm insane about making sure things are good enough, but. Um, I, I, I think that that has always kept into my mind that I, I need to be able to do better at whatever it is that I'm doing, even if what I'm doing is exceptional well, exceptionally well. So I think that that helped cultivate that mindset for me um, to, to just always have that beginner's mindset and that growth mindset. Um, but really, I think like what's, what shaped me is anytime I've faced adversity, um, I've always seemed to try to use that as an opportunity to bounce back and, and take myself to the next level. Uh, when I was in high school, my mom died, you know, and that was a major tragedy. And, uh, but, but at the same time, when that happened, I used that as an opportunity to really push my focus into running. Um, and I was able to take my running career to the next level to where I was able to, to, to do some, some of it in college. Um, you know, I've had things like that happen, getting fired from Memphis. That was another, again, tragedy. First time that, that ever happened to me. And I used that to, to my advantage and I pushed and, 
am now doing what I'm doing today where I'm, you know, teaching seminars, building my website back up, actually paying off my student loans at a reasonable rate. Um, so I've been, I've, that's kind of been what, what's always pushed me is it's a little bit of, okay, I've been kicked down. How can I get up out of this? But then, too, as I look back and those people who maybe contributed to kicking me down see me what I'm doing now, be like, remember when you said I couldn't do that? Well, here I am. And uh, so there's probably, there's probably a little bit of spite going in there as well. But I think also I just – I know I need to do better even when I hit my lows. Like it's, it's kind of like that, you know, Ryan Holiday book, you know, Obstacles Away, where he's like – you can look at a situation two ways. You can look at it as an obstacle or an opportunity. And, and it, it seems to me like, you know, you know, growing up in a, in a single parent home, then the death of your mother. And, and thanks for sharing that. Cause obviously that's not an easy thing to share. Um, and then obviously the, the gig at Memphis, you know, you've decided to look at all those, all those situations as opportunities to grow as a person. And how would you say that's helped you then deal with clients on a day to day basis? Cause the sense I get from you and, you know, as as I jokingly said, you know, at the start when I was like, oh, I'm assuming you're busy, but like the feeling I get from you, and it is an assumption right now, is that you are someone with high levels of empathy and compassion. You know, um, I get that sense from you, like, you know, because you kind of spoke about being a safe person to be around in terms of your clients. It's funny you mentioned that word too safe, because the first time I really heard that mention was by Paul Check, and mm-hmm. it so resonated with me. And, and the point he was making in that conversation was he was talking about that when you become more centered within yourself, when you really start to like internalize and meditate on yourself and try to, you know, continually work on self-actualization, you become a safer person to be around. And just whatever it was, the way he said it in the word safer, I knew exactly what he meant. He, he just basically meant that you are a person that people will be drawn to. They want to be around you because they're like, this guy, this girl, this person, this human, they're on something like they get it. And I just feel I need to be around them. There's just something about them. Like they can smell it off you. They can sense it. And, uh, you know, just when you use that word safe or or to create a safe environment, it just really resonated with me. And so again, my question to you is like, do you think, you know, from those past experiences, it it, it has led you to being a person with high levels of compassion and empathy? And, 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 and if so, how has that helped you on your day to day um, practice as a practitioner in the field of physical therapy? Yeah, no, um, it definitely has. I, uh, it just makes me feel more compassion for when people are, are down and out uh, because people have a tendency in here in the clinic to, to tell me things like some of their, their biggest struggles. Like I bring up abuse quite a, quite a couple of times just because I hear that, you know, or they're, they're having troubles in the relationship. Like people tell me those things. And it just, I think it makes you um, appreciate and understand a little bit more why maybe this person didn't get their exercises in this week. Um, so I, I think what, what that's helped shape me to do is continue to try and be better and better at meeting a person where they're at. Um, so if they're a busy mom with five kids and the, the husband's never around and they have back pain and the only time they can get this one activity that actually provides them some semblance of relief is when they're in the bathroom by themselves. Well, I'm going to design an activity that maximizes bathroom time. So they get the relief that they need. Um, so I, I think a lot of it is just meeting them where they're at. Um, something else I wanted to say, and I don't remember. I think one thing too is 
while I still get some people where I get a bit frustrated where I've kind of gone at the end of my rope in terms of trying to meet them at the lowest common denominator. Um, I, I think I'm also learning to better understand and appreciate those people as well. Realizing that, you know, maybe they've, they've had a bunch of, they've eaten a bunch of shit sandwiches in their day and they're at a point in their life where they just don't care about themselves enough to, to, to take care of themselves. Like I have a woman who I'm working with right now and she's, a frequent canceler. And she told me one time that, you know, I just, I haven't been doing my stuff or been coming in because I just don't feel like I'm, I'm that important right now. And I mean, my heart sunk when I heard that. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't know how to respond at the time, but it's like, I get it. Like that's, that's tough. And it's, it's pushed me to continue to find things to try to, how do I bridge those people? Because those people probably need more help than anyone. And maybe it's not always within my scope, but I always am thinking how in my scope of practice can I help that person get to where they need to go? Because right now the way that they feel about themselves is, is the rate limiting step. And maybe that's just as simple as while they're here, I'm making them laugh, smile and encouraging them that, Hey, you did some amazing things today. Let's, let's keep building on that. That's a fantastic answer. Just a slight, um, devil's advocate in this and it's 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 more so even just for my own thought process and consolidation is where where do we draw the line though with compassion and empathy and understanding you know with some people you, you kind of touched on it there a little bit with your with your last point you know what when is there a time where maybe like a little bit of tough love is what's needed you know like, like the real answer really here is it depends it is context specific but you know it's kind of like um it's where do you draw that line in the sand? Like, again, we, we, you can always, we, we can always go back to listen to everyone and everything is there for a reason and we understand that. But when, when something is brought to someone's attention and awareness and they still, like, won't make that first little bit of effort, you know, wh- when is a time we say, listen, I have, I have done everything I can to facilitate this individual in every way and it's just breaking my heart here. I can't do it anymore. Like, like, have you ever gotten to that stage yet with anyone? Cause it's something I wrestle with too. And it's a conversation I'm having with a close friend of mine one time. Cause you know, we, we'd be very similar in what we're kind of having a discussion on here in terms of our certain top processes and things. And that kind of came up with conversation where it's like, yeah, where do we draw a line on that? Like, you know, and I think where I left off with that top process and I'll see what you think about this is that I think when someone is made aware like really is made aware that they are in control of of their life like they they are in control of their actions and they 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 have full responsibility of it up to like almost every extent you know obviously you know outside of like something like genetic you know purely genetic but it's kind of like it's the Bruce Lipton thing like you know where Bruce Lipton goes around teaching the world like you know that we all go around unconsciously that we don't know what the fuck why we are the way we are but he's like then when you realize you know it's been brought to your conscious awareness that listen you actually are making your reality you just weren't aware of but now you are and now that you are aware of it you better fucking start doing something about it that kind of way so that's kind of where my thought process was on that was that when someone is actually made aware that they are in control of what they create from moment to moment and they still won't make that first little bit of effort because it still comes down to them taking that first step like where do we draw that line like have you ever thought about that yeah um i i think the key is and you said this you've exhausted everything that you could possibly do yeah so it 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 requires self-reflection in terms of what is when have you exhausted all of your your resources because ultimately as whether you're a clinician or you're a coach 
we can't do this shit for people. Yeah. Like I can't, you can't, you can't squat for that person and expect them to get gains. It has to be something that comes from within. And it could be that that person's not ready to make that change. And you have to be cool with, you did all that you could and it's just, they weren't ready at that time. And that's okay. So not everyone's always ready to make a change. Like Robbie, are you ready to stop swearing today? <laughs> I don't swear that much, but I give <laughs> Well, but you see what I'm saying though, right? It's, it's like, you know, that might not be in your lexicon, lexicon because that's what makes Robbie Burke, Robbie Burke. And maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just, we get to the point with someone where we're tugging at what, what, makes them who they are so much that they're so resistant to change that we're not going to do anything. Yeah. Like my guy who has the, uh, the kidney disease, like we're actually doing some really cool things with him in terms of getting him in less pain. But for me to get to the point where he takes more ownership of, of his health and says, Hey, I can do more of these things and I don't have to be held by my kidney disease. Like that's, he might not be ready for that in the yeah. time that I'm working with him. But you know what? Maybe three or four years from now, he might come back here. Well, I'm sure, sure as I'm not going to be here where I'm at because I'm going to be moving on to something else. But um, he may come back and say, you know what? I'm, I'm ready that bald-headed SOB. He, you know, planted this in my brain and I'm, yeah. I'm ready to make the change now. Yeah, what, what comes to my mind there is that you can plant a seed, but how long it takes for that seed to bud and, and like start to grow is different for everyone. You know, yeah. it could be it could be straight away for someone. It could be years years for other people. You know, so the it reminds me of James Fitzgerald from OPEX. You know, who is, uh, you know, one another mentor of mine. I have many mentors, and he's one and just a fucking savage human being as well. But he talks with this concept of detached caring, mm-hmm. and like he's like, so detached caring essentially is like you know we are facilitators, but but still, if that person isn't ready to make that change, you got to realize that that isn't your shit; it's their shit, mm-hmm. and that if for whatever reason you let that affect you, then there's something within you that you haven't fully come to uh, peace with, you know, that you, you, you know, if, if, if your own happiness and being is being externalized onto a client and their outcomes and goals, you know, that's not detached caring. Like the, you, you know, you, you got to realize that the good and, and the not so good that happens with the client is purely their shit. It's not yours at all. And that's like, you know, when people say, right, if you're a coach and you're saying that uh, the success of that team rattly is all because you, you better be willing to accept when shit goes wrong then as well. Mm-hmm. Because really it's neither. Like you should be able to detach yourself. Again, just like you said, I can't squat the way for someone or, you know, if I'm a coach with a, with a, with a, with a team sport, uh, with, with a team sport, like it's like once they go inside the white lines, like, I can't do anything else now. I facilitate everything else around that game, but it's up to the guys then or girls on the pitch. But yeah, it just reminds me of the concept too of detached caring that, again, you can facilitate, but if, if the individual isn't ready yet, they're not ready yet. And it's kind of like that Zen Buddhist coin, isn't it? You know, the, the, when the student is ready, the master will appear type job. Yeah. Yep, yep. Jocko Willink talks a lot about detachment as well. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, it's important for us to care, but be detached because if we if we get too emotionally invested then we're not making the best decision within yeah. our skill set too for that person exactly and uh, it's 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 not it's actually like detached caring is the highest form of caring like to, to be to be able to detach yourself you know what i mean and to say like on your way now you know because if you if you keep thinking that you need to be a crutch for them 
it's just enabling the person at the end of the day, you know, and it's probably filling a void in, inside of yourself. Yeah. Cause usually people who are helpers and are always putting other people before them, it's because that they get some intrinsic reward. It's a self-worth thing again. It's a coping mm-hmm. mechanism. It's a bit of certainty. It's like, Oh, I'm always the guy people come to for help and that's who I am. But really deep down, they're kind of like, but who helps me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that, like, you know, how many yeah. times we, we, we all have that friend in the group or it's usually, Absolutely. you know, a parental figure maybe or something like that, you know? So, um, I call it mammy syndrome. You know? uh, but anyway, this and this conversation has absolutely been fantastic and unreal. And a few more minutes here, but uh, just for like the more sort of, if they've hung in this long, like the more sort of like, they haven't really talked about like assessment and lifting of weights and stuff. I want more of that, just the hardcore stuff. Yeah. If I was a, if I was a, a patient and I come to you um, or a client or an athlete and I come to you what does that look like? So I'm coming in and I have whatever, an issue with a shoulder or a back or a knee. And it's my first day going to meet Zach Couples. How does that look? So let's, let's say I'm your intern and I'm sitting down there and it's my first day with Zach and first client walks in. Well, you have to be more specific because are you my client in person or are you my client? Sorry, in person. Yeah, I'm going to the clinic. I'm going to the clinic. Okay. Yeah. So kind of like what's, what's your system? If you, that's kind of what I'm getting at. So what, what's your system when you walk in? Well, for sure. So, um, so I get the paperwork, I, I walk over to the person and I go, so-and-so, I go, Robbie, and you go, yes, that's me. And I go, Robbie, I'm Zach Couples, I'll be your physical therapist. Do you actually, my, is that actually how you introduce yourself? Yes, and there's a reason why. If you introduce yourself by first and last name, it's more likely to resonate with someone because there's tons of Robbies. There's tons of Zachs. People forget names. But if you go first and last, the chances of them remembering your name are much higher. Handshake. We walk back into the clinic. I say, we're going to go door number two on the right. We walk together. So I kind of lead them a little bit, but I also want to go side by side just to know, hey, we're in this together kind of thing. I give them the option of, hey, you can either sit on the chair or in the mat or on the mat. They pick whichever one they want. So it's, again, giving them ownership, ownership, ownership. And, uh, unfortunately, because of uh, EMRs, I do have to take notes while I'm talking, but I have devised the skill of I can maintain eye contact with someone as I talk, take notes the entire time. So, um, I will always ask that person, is it okay if I take notes before we, we talk or while we talk? And most people will say, okay, as opposed to just diving in as most clinicians you probably go to and they're staring at the computer and they haven't even made eye contact with you. So then I go, how may I help you today? And then you would tell me your story and I would listen to your story. I usually shut up for a very long time before I interject. Um, I forget what the research is, but most physicians will, will interrupt someone very quickly within their subjective history. I try to minimize that um, because I'm trying to build that connection rapport that, Hey, I will listen to you. So you, you tell me what you got going on. Um, So we do that. We go back. I want to make sure that I know how this happened, what makes it worse, what makes it better. Are there any other problem areas, any relevant, well, any past medical history? I shouldn't say relevant because it's all relevant. And uh, then I thank the person. I go, thank you so much for answering all those questions. Better helps me, better help you. And mind you, I'm in character the whole time as I do this, Robbie. So I, I try to, like, there's a, there's a persona that I have online. There's a persona that I have in the clinic. Like, I'm trying to make this a fun and friendly environment for, for people to be in. And so I then go into my spiel about why I'm assessing what I'm assessing. So it might go something like, 
Thank you so much for answering all those questions, Robbie. Better helps me, better help you. Here's what we're gonna do today. I'm gonna take a look at just about everything on you. Your whole body moves as a cohesive unit. And a lot of times when you're stressed, I use that term very loosely, that could be stressors from the environment, that could be stressors within your body. There are several protective strategies that you may undergo to help deal with that. A lot of times that can be a result from a movement system, movement limitations. If you can't move certain joints in specific ways, that may put a little bit more pressure and strain within your body, and that could be a contributing factor to your pain. What we do here is I'm going to try to restore all those movement options, so that way you can even out the workload distribution throughout your body, and hopefully that helps you with pain and helps you with goal A, B, C, and D. So I always try to bring it back to why they're really here, like what's driving them. And then I ask them if they have any questions. They say, no, nah, we Gucci Z. They don't always say that, but they should. And uh, then we that, go to that, the exam. That's what, that's what you hear. Yes, that's what I hear, yes. yes. Perception is reality, so. Um, <laughs> then I go through my assessment. My assessment is basically looking at, I mean, you can, there's a couple of videos of me on my site you can go check out. It's pretty much the same thing for everyone. Um, because I think what we're trying to do in the rehabilitation realm is, is restore options. Or a person is using movement strategy A, and well, because they're hurting, that's not working for them anymore. So we got to give them a different strategy to utilize. And so I'm trying to take them to the opposite end of the spectrum, and hopefully that helps with, with pain. So um, I'm looking at uh, just about all the joints in the human body. Then I would go through and I would educate you on to, you know, hey, you have these movement limitations that might put a little bit more pressure and strain in some of the areas that you're hurting. Um, what I want to do is see if we can restore some of those movement options and see if that reduces some of the, the stress and strain in that area. you have any questions for me? And that's basically the, the, the initial evaluation. And uh, then we go through some, uh, I, I coach a lot of breathing-based activities. So the first session, the highest priority is to make sure you have the breathing sequence down pat that's going to help maximize your movement capabilities. So I base a lot of that off of infrasternal angle in terms of how I need to effectively generate pressure and, and, and tension within the, the thoracoabdominal pelvic cavity. And I make sure we coach the snot out of that. And then it's a matter of once that's in place, I start adding another piece. Maybe that's something that they're doing with their lower body. And then I might add another piece, which is something that they're doing with their upper body. And uh, I try to choose something that elicits a favorable change. And I, after we've done a few sets of, of the activity, I usually tell the person, um, well, let's make sure that worked. I try to only give people things that work, so I wanna see if we've got any changes. And a lot of times we do get some nice changes, and most importantly, I will come back to whatever provoked some of their symptoms, and if that improved as well, then everyone's happy. And I send you on your way until the next session. In, in terms of homework for individuals and then follow-up sessions is there a minimum sort of you know like is there a minimum sort of amount you'll send people away with or i suppose maybe a maximum is what i'm really asking there like would you like is it kind of just like one sort of big rock list and try and get this done i suppose maybe context dependent to how much you think someone can take on as an actual cognitive and physical load for the, for the rehab but also too is there a time where let's say, you know, maybe three, four, maybe five follow-up sessions and you're like, you know, and you're not getting 
sort of the change you want to get? Like, when do you draw a line and say, maybe this individual needs to see someone else? Or, mm-hmm. you know, like, so those two questions, is there, how much homework would you usually give to an individual to go home with? And like, how many sessions in with someone, follow sessions, and do you call it? Or say that there needs to be something different here, like into the process, if you're not seeing any significant change. Yeah, yeah. Um, homework first. Uh, typically, I would say I try to keep the home exercise program to one to three things, and most of the time it's one to two. Yeah, same stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, just just because I like I could have the greatest program in the world, but if it's not executed on a consistent basis, then it's worthless. It's worthless. Yeah. And that's, that seemed to be um, the number or the sweet spot number for me. But I also will ask, and a lot of times it's a conversation with, with the patient um, after I've shown them one, it's like, Hey, okay, I'd love for you to do this at home. Is that reasonable? Mm. And I say reasonable because very few people will tell you you're being unreasonable. So it's a way to get people to agree to doing this. And then I'll also ask them, look, I would be cool with this, but if I showed you one more, we might be able to get even better results. What do you think about that? And some people will tell me no, like I, I want to just try this one and I'm cool. Let's move on and we'll do something else. Maybe I'll do some hands-on, show them a little TLC and get them on their way. Um, so that's usually how it starts. By the tail end, my hope is that I'm giving them something that they do less frequently, but they do maybe more of maybe a couple, three times a week, which would be a strength and conditioning program. Yeah, yeah. So it should shift from practice this every day to, hey, maintain your fitness and conditioning levels because we know over the long term that's probably what's going to keep you healthier and keep you out of this office. Um, So that's typically how the home exercise program goes. Um, The second question is funny because I'm really good at determining when something's not going to work online but I have a harder time with that in person. And I think like if I'm not seeing any tangible results within two to three sessions online, I'm going to, I'm going to find them some, someone else or even one session. Um, because I know that they're spending a decent amount of money to work with me and I want to make sure that they get taken care of mm-hmm. here. When I'm working insurance, I, I feel like, maybe I haven't exhausted all of my options as quickly and I want to work with them. Or I have someone who had a stroke and it's like, well, when do you say that this isn't working? Well, I mean, if you've read the book, uh, the brain that changes itself, you'll know that there's sometimes periods where they have like a consolidation effect on their, on their learning and nothing improves. But then once they get over that, then it's like you get huge leaps and bounds. So for me, some of the times it's really hard to, to say or to call when this isn't working. Um, but, but typically I would probably say anywhere from like six to eight session mark, like mm. three to four weeks. Typically that's what most scripts are. Um, so I kind of go by based on what the doctor initially recommends. And also because this isn't my clinic, I kind of have to, to play that game or it's like, well, you know, this is conventionally what everyone else is doing. Who am I to say that we need to change this? here. So I'm going to just play this out and see if uh, some of the things that I do as well as incorporating a strength conditioning program, make some changes for people. And then after a month, there's not much going on. And I usually, well, I mean, I usually see people once every one to two weeks in clinic. So, or one, one to two times per week, I should say in this particular clinic. 
yeah, The Brain That Changed Itself by Norman Deutsch, savage book, great book. Mm. Actually, I must give that a reread. I'll put that in the show notes. How much time are you getting with a client where, you, where you're currently at in the clinic you're at? 45 minutes. So not too bad. Yeah, 45 is not too bad because you hear people like, oh, 50 minutes. Like, I won't work that. That's, that's why I'm stuck in podunk towns in the United States. Yeah. Um, because if you go to a big city and you're trying to do insurance based, it's mostly patient mills. And I just, I can't, I can't operate like that. So, yeah. you know, until I could do my own thing, small town USA it is. All right, wrapping up here, just a few quick fire questions. As Mike Robertson always says, it's the lightning round, but the, the, the questions are lightning, but your answers can be as long as possible. And then I'm, every time I hear Mike say that, I'm like, that defeats the whole purpose of a lightning round. <laughs> so they can't be as long as possible? <laughs> oh, no, they, they can. They can, yeah, absolutely. Um, my, what's Windows? Windows Defender is telling me that Windows Antivirus has not found any threats. That's great. So my, Winning. My, yeah, my laptop is winning, Charlie Shane. Um, we've kind of touched on this, but I'll ask it anyway. And if you feel it's redundant, I mean, you can just push over. But what have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life? Hmm, biggest lessons. I would have to say um, not have an ego is a really big lesson because I think that's taken me way farther than having an ego. Yeah. I think... Uh, um, working on myself, continually making myself better has been a big lesson because I found that the healthier that I am, the, the better I can serve others. Like we talked about um, just having compassion and empathy for, for people in clinic and how that has profound effects. Well, I notice weeks that I'm sleep deprived. I don't have that. I was, ju- I was literally just going to say, when you're sleep deprived, uh, your empathy and compassion goes way fucking down. And, and you know what? So did my outcomes. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was mind blowing and, and probably even my, my cancel no show rate. And it's like, Jesus. So now I'm like this past week, I've slept eight, nine hours a night and I've been like firing on all cylinders. So I think that's incredibly important. And, and not just that, but like even in relationships you may have, like I found that, you know, when I do things to take care of my own health, well being, or deal with some of the things that I struggle with, mm. it, it only helps my, my relationship blossom. So I think that's been a really big lesson for me um i think those are probably some of the the, the biggest two lessons yeah. i would say savage no that's lethal um two things on that just one with the ego i interviewed a gentleman called eddie richardson he's up in um acadia is that how you pronounce it it's up in canada acadia university it, Arca- is it arcadia or acadia i don't no, know no it's definitely not art it's a c a acadia D I A Acadia Acadia University because he was like some people mix up Arcadia it's Acadia but he's the head S&C there great guy and it was actually a brilliant interview but he says that this is so funny he goes he has a thing called the ego box and it actually is a literally it is a physical box that he leaves outside the the, the gym door obviously there's nothing in it but, yes. the whole, but the whole point was that he goes guys just so you know egos in here before we go into the weight room so I thought that was just so funny and so good, you know. That's savage. But yeah, uh, and then the uh, the other thing I wanted to say was that just going back again, we 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 touched on earlier on about like you know how there's there's chronic factors and acute factors that 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 shape us as human beings on on any given moment. And you know, you just talking about sleep there. Yeah, if you're sleep deprived, yeah, your fucking compassion and empathy and and your just your patience in general go way down. Uh, and just like you're like, just when you get hungry and your blood sugar starts to drop, you know, that's why it's called hangry because you're fucking, you're an asshole, you're hungry and you're tired. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're so you're hungry and you're angry. So hence why people call it hangry. Like, but we, we know that when our blood sugar isn't, you know, stable, that we, we're definitely 
not feeling too great. But uh, I've been just doing a, an experiment on myself wearing a, a continuous blood glucose monitor the last while. Mm, nice. And uh, I wore one when I went over to Bill there because I want to see how travel would affect it. And, you know, and kind of like yourself too, I know that you have a respect for circadian rhythms and circadian biology and, and like dark exposures. Like I've been, I've been an absolute circadian maniac since 2010 because it made such a profound impact on my health. Like un- unbelievable, completely changed my life. It was life changing, like starting out my, my light exposure and my circadian rhythms. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely outrageous. Um, so I obviously have a massive bias towards sleep and circadian rhythms and like just sleep hygiene mm-hmm. and all that. But what tracking my blood glucose made me realize, Zach, was that like, and I've had loads of times from my life where, like, like all of us, like you just you feel, you know you don't feel great. Other times you feel great. Other times you don't feel great. You don't feel great. But the sensations, the feelings when you don't feel great, kind of feel similar a lot of time. You're like, I have a haziness or a little bit of fogginess. And when I was tracking my blood glucose, I was like, it's fucking high blood sugar. And I was correlating it to the feeling. And I was like, and then once I started to like just kind of control it more, like, and started to started to notice things that were making my blood sugar high. So, for instance, if I just ate too much food the night before going to bed, and the next morning my blood sugar would be a little bit high, I'd have mm-hmm. that hazy feeling again, you know. And I also have the hazy feeling that I'm not a great person to be around. And it's just like simple things like that, you know. Um, and uh, you know, it's so funny because everyone when they when they saw the blood glucose monitor in my arm, they're like, "Oh, are you diabetic?" I'm like, "No, no, I'm just just doing it for an experiment," you know. <laughs> you know, and everyone's just like why would you I was just like uh, like you get that thing in your head that, that like you get that two voices in your head where like I could explain this and your voice like there's no point there's just no point just keep going um, yes. but I, I honestly do think that in the next for whatever reason 20 years in my head but it'll probably be even sooner like 10 years like like people's phones and all are going to tell them what their blood sugars are and like I can envision a future where like just like medicine, health, fitness and well-being are just going to be all intermingled. Like you won't be able to separate them. Like we're going to wake up in the morning and like walk to the fridge and be like, good morning, Zach. Your current hydration status is this. And your vitamin A and D and have all your vitamin status saying that because you are low on this vitamin today, this would be an ideal breakfast or your protein. Like we're going to be just told, it'll just be like all biometrics are just going to like come to one, like, you know. But I just found that blood sugar, track my blood sugar and just you talking about like, you know, how sleep can obviously have massive impacts on energy levels and thus empathy, compassion and patience and stuff. The same yeah. thing with blood, blood sugar, you know. Um, well, do you know um, the Dexcom 5? Oh, I, I, I'm using the Libra, which apparently is way less uh, reliable than the, apparently the Dex is way more, um, the Dexcom is yeah. way more. Um, that goes to your phone. Oh, does it? Yeah, there's an app with, uh, for the oh. Dexcom 5. Yeah. I'm not I using mean, I'm not using that one now. I'm using a Libra, but I, I, the one I'm using is not as good as a Dexacom, but Dexacom is way more expensive, apparently. How, how important is uh, your health and well-being to you? Oh, listen, I know. <laughs> I know, I know. Now, I want to do that too, man, because I, uh, I, I was feeling a lot of the same sensations with you before I, I went to Orlando for uh, Seth's class and then also a little Disney trip. And uh, like I was, I was kind of in straight gains mode for a hot minute and I was like eating some big ass meals and was getting so tired. Yeah. And then now I'm like, wow, I'm kind of getting fat. I should probably trim down a little bit. And that has gone away. And it's like, sometimes the best times I feel good is uh, when I don't eat, which yeah. I know probably I'm, I'm doing some stuff to try to take care of that. But uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, you got to take care of yourself. 
Mm-hmm. It's important. There's a whole other conversation I can have with you about fasting and mental acuity and like, you know, is it just sympathetic overdrive? But then like if you read any like the fucking classic meditators are always like never do it on a full stomach. Like they're always like be empty and like eat plants, try not to eat too much animal products because it bogs you down. Like if you're trying to go into deep meditation also I'm not having a conversation about vegetarian, vegan, mm-hmm. all that type of shit. There is no one way, people. There is no, no one there's way. Not. No, there's not. Um so that was the lessons question. Um I wanted to ask you too, how do, we actually touched a little bit on this earlier on. How do you learn? What is your learning process? It's uh, definitely shifted over the years because I think um, it's funny when you mentioned sapiens, I kind of internally chuckled, actually internally chortled to myself chortled. because um, like I'm starting to go away from books like that or when, when a behave came out by Robert Sapolsky and everyone was on it or even polyvagal theory. I just finished behave and I will say it, yeah. it is, it is brilliant. Well, so with those books though, I have to ask myself, does it change what I'm practically going to do with the person in front of me or the people in front of me this week? I, I'd say with behave for you personally, like just again getting a sense of of where you're currently at right now as a person and for me when i read it like for me personally when i read it it just consolidated what i kind of already kind of already knew but it's still nice reading that you know what i kind of mean yeah Um, and i'd say it'd be similar for you too you know again the book is just purely like listen everyone everything is whatever reason these are the reasons what i really liked about the book was how he put it together because it's exactly how i look at behavior isn't that he started like once what happened one second before that behavior what happened minutes before hours months years but he went all the way back you know going from acute factors like lunch he actually has a great one in the book you love this judges who were hungry mm-hmm. uh, convicted more often than judges yeah. who just after eating like you know blood sugar regulation or i'm hungry yeah. i'm sick of listening to this bollocks yeah you're gone you're gone you're gone you're guilty whereas like you know oh, i just had lunch i feel okay my energy's up he's a little more empty you know he's gas just what we were talking yeah. about yeah Never, okay. never go, never go to the court before lunch. Um, <laughs> usually you want to go like in the morning or right after lunch. I think there was another book that also said like people, um, had, had shorter probation sentences if they were in court on those two times. Hilarious, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, sorry, but, but go, I, go ahead there. You know, you're you're well, books. I, I try to do things like I try to structure learning now to solve a particular problem. I'll give you an example. Let's say I have someone who just developed patellar tendinopathy and I'm seeing them for the first time and I'm, I'm going through some things and we're getting some improvements, but not at the speed that I want. Then what I will do is I will dive into as many different things as possible to try to learn and understand as much about that specific problem as I can. So that's Mm -hmm. reading books about, the knee and maybe it's not the entire book, but maybe I'm reading the section that I have on the book on the knee. I'm looking into research on patellar tendinopathy and what some of the treatments are that are involved in that. Maybe some, you know, Joe Blow did a podcast on that and I'm going to take a listen to that. I'm going to try to consume as much relevant information as possible. Try to consolidate that into one piece, whether that's a bunch of different note cards and then that ends up being a blog post. And then most importantly, I go and apply that because I think that's where we fall short with something like behave is, yeah, that's cool to consolidate it, but will that stick with you five years from now because you're not applying that on, on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. Whereas if I do something, I immediately use it, I'm much more likely to remember that. So it's really a problem-based 
learning or solving problem-based learning for me that um, I, I try to use. That's ex- the, I'm not going to, I'm not just saying it. That's exactly, exactly how I go about it. As in, so I'm like, all right, I look at a specific area topic, so a question, and then I try and get as many resources as possible. So if it's cancer, right, get a textbook. Then within that textbook, who are the contributors to that textbook? Look them up. Have they got any material out there, research? Then look for any, who are the perceived experts out there? Because I have this thing about people being called experts. You know, I mean, you can't really tell who's an expert. Plus expert, expert doesn't, or experience doesn't equal expertise either. But then as well, I go for podcasts, particularly if there's a certain, uh, someone's work who I've read a lot, an awful lot of, and then I'll see if there's any interviews with that individual. So again, so you get into multiple ways, reading, auditory, then podcasts, and then any uh, videos or YouTube um, interviews with that individual. And then, yeah, consolidate that information. And then the other thing I'll say to you too is, I've been asked this before as well, like how do I learn? And that's what I, that's one thing I say is that, you know, just like you pick, the, pick the area, the topic, the question, and then like, you know, textbooks, podcasts, audios, experts in the field, and then contact the experts, talk to them interview them maybe for a podcast. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I was going to say was that I see learning just like physical training. So like, as in like, I'll have an accumulation period, then mm-hmm. I'll have an intensification period. And then like yes. a realization or a, or a peaking, that's where you put the, the knowledge into actual physical practice. So like you're, you're accumulating like, so, cause what I always see with people who are, are masters in a domain is they're all generalists. They have this huge, broad general foundation to their, that supports their specific knowledge. Like GPP supports SPP and physical development. So I see it as the same. So like, so like I have a topic and my accumulation phase, I'm accumulating all the information. Then I intensify in it. So I've, I've got all the resources, accumulation, then I intensify. That's where I do the study of it. And then realization is putting it into practice, put like consolidating them. So like, uh, that's how I see it too. But it's so funny. I, I do a similar thing. Like, so it's good to hear. Yeah. It's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's how you learn. Last two or three now, and then I'll, I'll let you go, my man, because I want to go for a walk here for the, for the old sunsets as well. Um, I can smell the dinner in the house here. Nice. It's been cooked downstairs. Um, so lessons, how you learn. What would you say are your top resources? And what I think a lot of people don't get that question when I ask it. Now, when I say resources, this can be anything. It doesn't have to be training, just training related or anything to do with rehab or anything like that. But like a resource or resource that you think would potentially just help the quality of someone's lives. Mm. Um, and sorry, well, and, I sh- and I should say, sorry, the, re- sorry Zach, the resource could be like, a book, a podcast, a video, a person, a course, an event, a product, you know, whatever. For sure. For sure. Well, um, there are four seminal books for me that I read right after I got fired in Memphis that were life-changing for me. You've mentioned one of them, The Obstacle is the Way. Um, I think Mr. That's Holiday. Mr. Holiday. And also The Ego is the Enemy is another good one. Mr. Um, Holiday. Yep. We got uh, Extreme Ownership by uh, Mr. Willink. Jocko Willink. I'm a big fan of that. And then I also like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by uh, Mark. I have that, but I haven't read it. One thing I just want to ask you, right, with extreme ownership. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I read that like Jocko Willink. Actually, I really do like Jocko Willink, even though, like, you know, this whole thing is dead if not 4.30 in the morning. Like, I'm like, all right, give me a break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to sleep, bro. Yeah, you need to sleep. <laughs> you, you might think it's working for you, but tell me in 20 years or 30 years time how you're doing it. Yeah, not um, with that gap teeth. Um, yeah, but the one thing I'll say with his book is that, like, like it's like people read it and they're like, oh my god, it's unbelievable. I'm just like, he basically just saying like, take responsibility for your shit. Like, I mean, do, do, is that really that astounding? Like, do people like really like? Well, I think, I think it's astounding for a lot of people because I think a lot of people feel like they have no control over situations. True, true. Yeah. And 
I like definitely after I was, I was fired, I was feeling that. And that's what I needed. It's like, yeah, yeah, you can, you can, you can, you you can say that this is your defining moment or you can take it and flip it. And that's exactly what it did for me. Yeah. Like Um, so much, so much of a book too is, is context in that, like where you were in that moment in your life. Cause like a life changing book for me was biology belief by Bruce Lipton. But like, if I was to read that book now, do you know, or if I was to read, if I'd never read that book and I was to read it now, know what I know now, even though know what I know now is because of that book. But you get what I mean? If I read the book now, I'd be like, oh, this, this, is, this is kind of, this is all right. But like when I read it at the time, I, that, that book changed my life. Like it was unbelievable. And then yeah. same, similar with books by a guy called Joseph Shilton Pierce. Like those books are just fucking life changing, you know? And it's yeah. funny too, because when you say things are life changing or a massive influence, I kind of say that in the mindset of that, you still always want to be your own person. <laughs> you know what I mean? For sure. Isn't it that kind of paradox too? You know, like you want to have self-reliance, like, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson and be able to think for yourself. And, but then when you, when you say things, oh, that, that person or this individual was a massive influence to me, you're kind of like, you know, they were a massive influence, but I still say that in a place of like, I'm still my own man and will make my own decisions at the end of the day. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, you got to, you know, because people, they- people can walk away like saying, well, you kind of confused me here. You're saying like to be your own person, but then you're saying these people were huge influences. So like, mm. yeah. Well, it's, it's that this person has helped shape you be the best version of yourself. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the biggest thing. So I think you still, you still attain some semblance of who you are. It's just, you, no one does anything alone. Yeah. Well, I think it's like taking their shit and making it your own. Do you know? You yes. Yeah. Yes. You know what I mean? So there, it, it's hip hop. <laughs> it's hip hop. Hey, you know what? So we know uh, the song Notorious B.I.G. Big Papa. Oh, of course. Right? That song would not exist if it weren't for the, uh, oh my gosh, the Isley Brothers. Right? Really? Yeah. Well, because the sample in the song is straight from the Isley Brothers, uh, Footsteps in the Dark. I didn't know so that. If, if they did not take that sample and put it into the song Big Papa, we would not have Big Papa. It would not have been the same. Yeah. So like, that's like the crux of hip hop. That's, that's how we got to approach our, our mentors and all that. It's like you take it and maybe, maybe the elements look the same, but you put your own spin on it exactly. and then you got exactly. a completely new product. And that's, yeah. that's how we progress in science so you, and, we progress and everything. You take the ingredients, but how you put it together could be, could, could, you know, could make it a, a different, uh, different meal, you know? Yeah, yeah 100%. Um, one other thing. Uh, it's actually a blog because we're talking about life lessons. Yeah, of course. Are you familiar with Eric Barker's blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree? Or Absolutely not. I love, I love when I haven't heard of things. You need that. Um, I like his because what, basically what he does is it, he essentially promotes books that you wouldn't, wouldn't hear about. Um, otherwise, like, like I'll give you an example of his most recent post. Uh, it might be like 10 things to become a more empathetic person, as an example. Um, or like <laughs> one of my favorites is like five ways to be like James Bond. Um, you know, it, like things like that. And it's like achieve confidence and stuff like that. Like here's his, here's his most three reasons. How to have more energy, three powerful secrets from research, new, new neuroscience reveals Sleep. seven secrets that will make you persuasive. This is how to make your life amazing. Like yeah, yeah. some of these little summaries are just like, you get like one little point. It's like, Oh yeah, I can start implementing that. And then it gives you another book that you need to put on your Amazon wish list, which is now eclipsing 700. So funny. When you say like five ways to be James Bond, it's like, eh, it depends on what James Bond we're talking about here. You know, if we're, if we're talking about, 
you know, is it uh, fucking Sean? Uh, what's his name again? Sean, Con- Sean Connery. Yeah, Sean, Sean Connery. If we're talking like Martinez, dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If we're talking Sean Connery versus Roger Moore, or versus yeah. who was the fucking other the? Who was the well, you had guy? so you had Sean Connery. I don't know if you knew this. I'm a big Bond. Like you know, Bill likes Batman. That's how I am with James Bond. So yeah, there's Sean Connery, Sean Roger. Connery, you know, you had George Lazenby. Oh, right. George Lazenby was um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It was just, he was a one and done. Then he had Sean come back for Diamonds Are Forever. Then you had the whole Roger Moore saga. Then you had Timothy Dalton. Dalton, which yeah. Like a, yeah, which he wasn't bad. Hey, then right. you your lull before uh, Pierce Brosnan came in. And then you have now Daniel Craig. Yeah. But you, you either need to try to be like Sean, first and foremost. Sexiest man of the century. Um, everybody wants, wants him and wants to be him. Or you got to be like Daniel Craig. Like those are the top yeah, two. That's, that's what I mean. It, it, bonds are good. Yeah. Well, uh, if, it, they'd be the two Bonds I'd like to be. But like, if you were saying to me, I had to pick. But uh, it's funny. Your thing is James Bonds. Mine is American presidents. I know all your presidents back to back. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. Prove it. No, kidding. <laughs> I, I, I'd, actually, I'd actually do it, but it would well, it'd only take 30 seconds. Uh, fuck it. I'll give it a go. I can always edit it. So. Uh, no, but I do know. It's all right. You're, you ready? You ready for it? I'm yep. going to go for it, right? All right, so you got George Washington, you got uh, George Washington, John Adams, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, uh, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, um, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, Will- William Henry Harrelson, who died a month in the office because apparently he gave his speech and like was freezing cold and he caught pneumonia, but then that was a lie. Apparently, then he got it was actually typhoid from the water. But anyway, he died a month in the office. Then you had um, John Tyler. James K. Polt, Zachary Taylor, he died in office. Then Willard or Millard Fillmore. What are we? The worst president of all time. Millard Fill, what a name. He took over. Then after him, it was um, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Abe Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, most racist president ever. Only one of two presidents ever to be up for impeachment, Bill Clinton being the other. Um, so after Johnson, you had Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, um, James Garfield got shot, Chester A. Arthur. Uh, then you had Grover Cleveland mm-hmm. and Benjamin Harrison, who was the nephew of William Henry Harrison. Then Cleveland came back into office, the only president ever to be re-elected to separate four-year terms in office. Mm-hmm. Then it gets easy after this. McKinley got shot. Then the great T.R., what a man. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, William Howard Taft, big fat Taft, got, apparently got stuck in the battle, but then they said that was a myth. But then he became a chief justice after being president, which is what he really always wanted. He never wanted to be president. Then mm-hmm. you had... Um, you had Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, who was savage for the labor, but a racist motherfucker. Uh, he actually resegregated the civil service in, Amer- in, mm-hmm. in America, in the, the, like the departments. Um, but again, understand why he was the way he was. Grew up in the South, was around uh, the Civil War, and so he, he saw the destruction of the South and like, you know, put that all towards the end of slavery, so he had that sort of yeah. bias. Listen, all the presidents had their good and bad points. So that was Wilson. Then he had Warren G. Harding, uh, he died, heart attack in office, and then Calvin, Calvin Coolidge came in, Silent Cal. There's a great story actually with him where there was a dinner at the White House and someone says, Mr. President, I have a bet with a friend that I can make you say more than three words. And he looks at and goes, you lose. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> then you had Herbert Hoover, unfortunate Herbert. Oh, man. Just wrong place at the wrong time because apparently he was a savage politician and like one of the most qualified people for president, but depression came along and 
just disaster. Like, people associated him then with the Great Depression. Then you had the great fucking Franklin down in Roosevelt, who, again, had good points and bad points, like the fucking Japanese internment camps. That was pretty shit. Um, but listen, he was put under pressure for that. But obviously, he voted to four, like four terms as president. But it was an absolute... That's crazy. How he got voted for the fourth term, he was barely hanging in there. Like, barely, he'd give his fucking acceptance speech at the White House because he couldn't, like... He was just, like, so sick. He was so ill. Um, it was just in bits he was. Um, but yeah, he voted to four terms. Then you had Truman. Mm-hmm. And then after Truman, you had Ike. I like Ike. So after Eisenhower, then there was Kennedy, then there was Johnson, then there was Nixon. I love Nixon. Like, I don't mean I love him as a person or just like. I am not a crook. Yeah, Nixon, Mr. I'm not a crook. Uh, just like, I love him from like, he's just like a fascinating bloke to study. He was just like so fucked up. Then you had uh, Gerald Ford. Mm-hmm. And uh, after Ford, Jimmy Carter, who actually, and I know some people are going to absolutely like, not like this, but I actually really like Jimmy Carter just as a human. Like, he's one of my favorite presidents because he, he did, I like, he. He he would do things if he thought they were right, not they were popular. Like say with the, when Iran and the hostages, and people were like, "Why don't you just bomb Iran?" He's like, "Yeah, I bomb Iran, and what happens? What happens then? Yeah, it makes us feel good, but what? We kill people, and our hostages get killed, and it, and my poll ratings might go up for a while." He's like, "I'm not doing that shit." So I'm just like, "That that showed courage." Uh, then you had Reagan, then you had George Senior, George H. W. Bush, um, who do you actually know? His approval rating was at ninety two percent, and he still got voted in office. After really? after the after the Gulf War, he had ninety two percent, the highest any president ever had, and and do you know why he got voted out of office too? Is because watch every, uh oh well yeah 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 when he was when he was doing the presidential debate that kind of put it over the edge. But no, the real reason was he re- he rose taxes, and when he ran for his first term, he was like, "Read my lips, not no new taxes." Yep. Read every, my lips, no new taxes, and see this is why if you talk to people, people are always like, "Oh, Reagan was great, the economy was great." It's like, yeah, the economy was great. But then, like, it, it, it went so outrageously, it was so unregulated that, like, it crashed when Bush was in office and it fucked him up. So, like, yeah. it was because of Bukhara's gas. But then you had Bill. Ah, uh, Bill. Uh, then you had, obviously, George W. Bush. Then you had Obama. And now you have Trump. So there's all your presents. That's crazy, man. I'm impressed. Yeah. yeah. I've watched a lot of YouTube documentaries. Have you? Yeah. Hey, can you, can you give a rating on my Ronald Reagan impersonation? Uh, go, go ahead. Do it. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. <laughs> that is fucking savage. That is so good. Well that done. That has to stay in. That yeah. Oh, this is all staying in. <laughs> I don't edit my podcast, man. I, I, whenever I interview people, like, okay, I'm like, I'm, not, I'm probably not. I'm too lazy. Uh, anyway, there's nothing here that needs to be edited out. I mean, listen, I'm respecting your time and I said I want to go for a walk. So, last two questions. Uh, you gave us books there, so I don't need to ask the book question. Oh, just what are you currently reading, actually? Are you currently reading anything? What am I currently reading? I'm reading Jocko Willink's new book, The Dichotomy of Leadership. Oh. Um, yeah, so so far, so good. Um, I'm reading Why We Sleep a little bit. Read and that. Then, um, Read that. Yeah, yeah that's, it's a pretty good one. Yeah, it's kind of making – actually, I stopped drinking caffeine this week as of right now. So uh, how, many, how, many, how many days in here? I think I started Monday. How do you feel? Pretty good. Yeah, I feel normal. I'm sleeping more. So. Did you ever, did you ever read Cressy's uh, uh, blog post when he quit and he had the withdrawal symptoms? No. Yeah, it was when he, opened up the, when he opened up the, the facility in Jupiter and the babies were coming. I think his daughter was maybe just born, but he was like, he was like coming off drugs to him. Like he was like in beds with the shivers for days, like and all. Wow. Yeah, but Eric Cressy's a machine. Like he just keeps going and going and going. He's typing. Yeah, yeah. But, 
But um, all right, last two questions. You have one year left on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. How would you spend that year and why? Man, um, I would do two things. I would, well, I'd probably do them simultaneously. I would travel the world and I would write a book. Um, those would be the two things I would do in that, in that year. That way I see everything that I want to see because I really love travel. Um, like, I, like one of my things is to go to all the national parks in the U.S. I think I've been 16 or 17 uh, since last June. So I've been on a tear. Um, and then I want to write a book so I have some, some, somewhat of a legacy. Um, hopefully the book changes the world and it would either be a book maybe on how to maximize social support and interaction or, uh, something with, uh, kind of how I do PT. We meet up and I say, Zach, I'm taking you for dinner. And you're like, okay, absolutely. I'd love you to take me for dinner. And I say to you, you can invite five people to this dinner. They can be dead or alive. Who would you invite to this dinner and why? So I have magic powers. I can bring bring people back from the dead if I have to. Um, Wow, that's really, really tough. Well, I think uh, Daddy O'Pops has to be there, Bill Hartman, Mm. for sure. Um, that would be one person who just w- one thing I meant to say about Bill too when you mentioned like he, you know, he's, he's like in his 50s now he is in some condition holy god yeah right like when he went when he's, when he's just walking around in his t-shirt you're like that guy's fucking jacked yeah yeah uh, his transformation has been crazy and I've known him before that and, and well, I met that. him I met him three years ago just before like because I, I remember seeing a picture of him and I was like holy shit like his face I was like holy shit he's lost a lot of weight and then I saw him I was like holy crap he's after getting shredded yeah, yeah, yeah. Veins are, are insane. Still in great, Nick. All right, so yeah. yeah. Pops is there. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Nice. I think he has to be there, yeah. Um, just Have you ever read his biography? His uh, autobiography? Total Recall? Yeah. I have it, but I haven't read it yet. But I oh, man. It. Phenomenal story. I mean, say what you will about some of the questionable decisions he's made, but just his rags to riches story is just... Oh, man. Have you have you not seen Bill Burr's uh, skit on him? It's unbelievable. Like where, oh, I'm going to send it to you. You are going to fucking love it. So like his whole skit is like where everyone was like, you know, people like they, they want to condemn Schwarzenegger because like, okay, he had an affair. Like he's like, well, hold on. Let's think about this whole guy's story. He's from Austria and he made himself famous for lifting weights. I lift weights. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> and, then, and, he's like, and then he's like and then he's like I think I'll be an actor and everyone's like no you won't no chance Aaron. he becomes a fucking actor and he fucking nails it and he's like I think I'll become the governor and everyone's like you're not gonna do that and he fucking nails it this guy's been yeah. winning his whole life yeah 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 oh yeah did you know he was a millionaire before he was in the movies I actually didn't know that construction oh he did know that himself and Franco Colombo he told he told the story on Tim Ferriss's podcast yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. he was a I mean crazy I mean just like unbelievable story and like I would just like I'm thinking of people who I would draw from Sean Connery I think would be a third one okay. uh, because I love him because he doesn't give a fuck mm. absolutely zero fucks and just like so suave so cool and confident like uh, he, he definitely has to be there yeah so that's three four and five Man, that's got to be tough. I think I would have Eminem. Um, Eminem is my favorite rapper. Uh, he also had a hell of a story, man, too. Uh, wow. Just his upbringing. Like, you you hear his content and are horrendously offended. Well, if you listen to or if you watch his documentary, you'll completely understand why. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, he just had a rough, rough childhood, but I just like, I admire him for how he is so good at what he does. Technical prowess, you know, un, like no one has touched that in, in hip hop. So like, I really appreciate that about him. Um, the last person, cause that's four, right? That's four, man. Yeah. Man, alive or dead. I'm trying to think. I mean, I got you there, so I know we good. I don't count. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't count in the five. Yeah, I know you don't. I know you don't. It sucks. Um, man, I'm just see. I've covered. I'm, I'm trying to think of areas that I've covered that, like, uh, you know, who I would have. I would have Jocko Will. Oh, that's I would. Um, so we have Bill. Arnold, Sean Connery, Eminem, and Jocko. Yes. That's a pretty fucking kick-ass dinner. Yeah, I, I think it would be a lot of fun because I think you, you would learn something from every one of those people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's my dinner. I, I know it's not very S&C oriented, but uh, like, those are some of the people who I, who I look up to and, and try to model my life after to a degree. Listen, do you want to talk about fucking Terminator and Bond movies or sets and reps? I'm going Terminator and Bond movies, baby. Boom! All day, every day. And fucking Eminem and we'll do some yes. rapping. Well, I won't do it. I'll just let him do the rapping. Obviously, it's his... Well, consider this, though. It's, it's... Most of the creative solutions that we would get within our field would come from people who can realize problems outside of your field. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's like the, what, what is, there's a term for that. It's like the expert, is it the expert beginner or something like that? Or the expert novice? You hear this where like some like Tesla would bring people in from other, other professional domains to try to poke holes at a specific thing. And, and, and you know, uh, what? I, uh, p- people, those type of people are people who probably understand first principles and critical thinking. Yes. It's so funny because James Smith has this story where he talks about he meets this person who's in a, he's like an he was he was like an IT or computer science or he's an engineer or something like that. Mm. And, and, uh, and like he was asked, so James, what do you do? And like James was saying, you know, I'm a consultant, I'm mainly consultant, you know, within sports preparation. And then James said, James just said, for some reason, I asked him this question. I said, just out of interest, if if you were to like have to write a preparation program for a sports team, where would you start? And then the 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 like the guy who's never knowing in sports, he's just like, I think he was an engineer or something like that. He goes, well, the first question I would ask her, what are the demands of the sport? And then James is just like, my God. He just, <laughs> he just like answered like a whole book of writing. He's, <laughs> he's like, do you, do you realize there's people who are in this profession and they, they, that wouldn't have been, they would have been, oh, I don't know, we squat. Yeah. We squat and do power cleans. And just as for, well, I would, I would ask what are the demands of the sport and I'd work backwards. That's what your man said. I'd work backwards from there. I'd look at the game and work backwards. It's just like, James was like, you get that and so many people in the profession don't just like yeah i, I kind of get what you mean though i'm bringing people from other domains because listen everything's fucking connected mm-hmm. first principles underpins everything so like yeah, yeah. success leaves clues exactly success leaves clues. Com- just common common denominators common trends common mm-hmm. common denominators struggling with that word common denominators common trends but uh listen but this has been we're almost going two hours now not in pocket. i know we had well i was gonna say we, we discussed beforehand but it was mainly me just blowing your ears off it was funny because you spoke about like you were very good at listening to your patients and while you were saying that i was like yes you are because anytime i went on a spiel you just were really patient and very kind of just <laughs> sat there with a, with a very sort of interested gaze even though you yes. probably zoned out which i wouldn't blame you for but listen zach this, this has been immense but um i'll wrap up here and say our goodbyes uh, offline so 
uh, just for obviously people that want to know more about you and, and contact details and what's coming on or what's coming up in the future, where, where's the best place to go? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, best place you can find me is my website, zackcouples.com. Um, that's where I try to devote most of my time. Um, if you really want to get in the know, you subscribe to my newsletter, you'll get a bunch of free content. Three, which, like four and a half hours of talking. Which I, I'm actually subscribed to. I love it. Getting My man. Weekend. Yeah, your weekend goodies. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you got you to get the goodies. You got to get the, you know, four and a half hour talk. Well, three talks across four and a half hours. Yeah. Uh, discounts to products. All that stuff is there. Um, if you want to see me in person, Human Matrix, my seminar. Mm-hmm. That would be the place to go. Um, if you like, like we kind of talked about before, I try to do a mix of theoretical and practical because what I want to do is I want to see if we can impact um, what people do on Monday to help their clients achieve their goals, whether that is making their squat look pretty so they can be better at fat loss or have greater fat loss, or if it's getting out of pain. Um, that's what that course serves for. And you also do some online mentoring. If someone, if people are interested in that? Yes, I do. So there's three things I do online. Mentoring is one of them. So a lot of the concepts that we talked about today or among others, if you want to learn how to better apply some of these things with your people and you're just unsure where to start, that's the place to go. Uh, Movement consultations as well. If you'd like me to do some of these things to you, because maybe you can't hit depth in the squat. Like I had uh, someone yesterday who uh, had a referral from a trainer who uh, she, she couldn't squat. Like it just was not good. And so we ended up finding a variation to get her to squat as well as accessing some of the movement limitations or movement options that she didn't have. And uh, it was a very productive session. So I do things like that. And I also offer online training. So if you're post rehab, if you, uh, you know, are more on the fat loss side of things, like those are probably the things that are a little bit more in my wheelhouse. Um, If you just want to move better, feel better, I'll be your guy. So that's really like services that I offer. Um, Otherwise you can find me on social media on Facebook, Mm. forward slash z couples twitter the handles at z couples and that instagram baby <laughs> zach z-a-c couples c-u-p-p-l-e-s and if you want to find a bunch of random exercises that aren't so random just search that couples on youtube and i'll be there all of that shit will be in the show notes all of it so savage savage is an irish word for brilliant this is you know absolutely loved it love talking to you i really 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 appreciate you making the time and uh, it, as i've been saying to uh all of the listeners on my last few episodes, you were spoiled people, spoiled with all this information <laughs> I give away. Um, but I love it. I love it. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have preferred to be anywhere else over the last two hours. This is absolutely immense. So I'll wrap up here. I'll shut up now, as they say, and, and let people get on with their days. But thanks, everyone, for um, giving, giving us their earbuds for the last however long we were on. I think we're on about an hour and 40-so minutes or something here. But Zach, again, appreciate it. And no doubt we'll have you on again soon. And for everyone listening, oh, take care. Be well and stay strong. Mm-hmm.